Welcome to The Word Podcast. I'm Seth Williams. And I'm Brendan Ward. And we're here to discuss all things local real estate, legal, title, market, and really anything else we can come up with. So stick with us on this journey as we talk about The Word. All right. Welcome to The Word. Today we are joined by attorney Mark Lacasse from Lacasse Law. zoning development uh guru for the city of boston real estate attorney and uh ferocious attorney in general ferocious ferocious yes i would say that was it's kind of glowing from brendan yeah tempered with mercy and good manners yes (laughs) i guess i should learn some of those traits well you know they come with experience oh is that is that what it is I, I am amazed that people actually have an interest in the topic of zoning when they figure out what it really is. I, interest might be the wrong word. I, I had the pleasure uh, of joining a virtual ZBA meeting fairly recently. I will spare you the details. In Boston? It was not in Boston. Okay. Um, it it was a true delight. First off, I joined because I have a client who I represent, who is going through the zoning process. So I was just simply joining in, you know, as an interested party to the transaction, A, B, want to, you know, stay up to date. Um, even though it was still on the most recently published agenda, they were postponed, I, which I still don't understand how that works. So maybe you could tell me about that in a little bit. And then I listened to several people in arguably the most unprofessional manner uh, of all time legitimately argue with hostility, uh, their case. Some, it was something else. Was this in a city or a town? It's not important. It's not important. It Either doesn't was. matter, Brendan, because whether you're in a city or town, whether you're in this state or another state or anywhere in the country, you could drop in on a zoning-type hearing of any sort that involves people's livelihoods and their homes, and you're going to get the same kind of crazy. It's remarkable. That's one thing that is consistent with these types of meetings and hearings in municipalities is that at root, they're all the same. They, they bring out the same type of behavior and Ugh, people think that that's the screeching truth. entitled. No, it just, no, people, people think that inconsiderate screeching and screaming is the way to get across a point in, in a, in a civic proceeding. It, it reminded me, I, uh, you know, my tenure on the board of trustees at Atlantis Marina was really a delight and I learned a lot, but I, it reminded me of sitting on a board that I no longer sit on. Um, that would be a condo board. Yes. Even more so than zoning proceedings, condo boards and condo disputes are at root personal because it's people's abodes that we're talking mm, about their castles so. yeah. and and money and money did i mention money is always an issue really oh, that shocking, motivates shocking. people to to piss each other off it was just it was so um you know we've talked a lot about nimbyism so to speak and uh less so on uh you know the the board of a condo association but the the whole thing was very interesting and i think that what i was trying to get at is like the unfortunate um shtick of hostility or uh, coming from a place of negative intent, better said. Yeah. Was was really big uh, words today. Yeah, thank you. You yeah. know, I'm just trying to level up here. Yeah. Um, th- it was very uh, similar. It was, it was, but I also couldn't stop watching. It was something. It's like crack. It's like it soup. Was, it well, was. I, I thought you were going to remark on the composition of the board itself, which again is a whole other interesting topic. That is, all of these boards are volunteer positions, right? They're not elected they're appointed um, and the type of people that are drawn to these positions unfortunately are power seekers perhaps um, who view these positions as a way to exert power and influence in their community and they come to these positions most of the time or many times with no underlying knowledge whatsoever about zoning how it works, where it comes from, the legal principles underlying it. They have no clue, and they think it's just, you know, a power grab with politics mixed in between in, uh, as a way to control what happens in their community. And sadly, that plays out over and over again. I I would I think I concur with that. The hundred uh, percent. No, there's always like or s- grieved, right? Like someone that was you know yeah, not yeah, treated yeah. well by that board that then makes it their mission to get on it and treat oh, everybody else poorly. I I would say that there's there's I a f- lot of that. Yeah. I feel like there's always like one 
or two people who are like highly skilled and deserve that seat and their job eventually becomes the chair and they are just trying to keep the rails together, you know, everything on the rails and, uh, until they're not though, like sometimes those people are just as dangerous. Fair. Having been the chair of the finance and advisory committee for like quite a while in the hunt, I you, can, you were probably to that. dangerous I, <laughs> when I wanted to be interesting. Yeah. But <laughs> the rules are fun. Sometimes there is, you know, a problem that is facing such boards nationwide, local state and nationwide and that is nobody wants to do it. That's the truth. Nobody wants to do it. So no one wants to do anything, though, Mark. You and I were talking about this earlier, right, about voter apathy. They don't even want to vote, let right. alone spend hours educating themselves on complex zoning matters or historic preservation matters or planning board matters or coastal environmental matters or anything that these boards regulate. They would have to educate themselves. They would have to study the cases before them. <laughs> Yet that sounds horrible. Do, yeah, large percentages of people can't even bother to get up and go vote on you know a Tuesday. Can't you just have a feeling? A like I don't feel like that's a good project. Can't you just go in and be like, that sucks. I don't like that one. Well, do, don't you think? And we're just really unpacking the zoning thing. And it'd be cool to talk about a couple specific things and try and get your take on them. But don't you think it's just far too much? What's in it for me versus the greater good of a community? That is what ends up happening at these hearings because the parties who have the right to speak and express an opinion about a zoning case are abutters. Right. <laughs> <laughs> My least favorite word, abutter. You know, and who's, as an abutter, like no one's happy with perpetual construction or renovation or redevelopment changing the landscape of the neighborhood where you plunk down your biggest investment more than likely i get it and even if the abutter property got the same type of zoning relief that is being sought by the property next door that doesn't matter because their next perspective is predictable and i see it all the time well i already have mine and i was here first so why do you think you can have yours yeah. Right? Like, like, like it's obvious to them that that's the solution. <laughs> well, I got, I got my zoning relief from my property so I could add a second or third floor onto my building and you want to do the same. Hey, no way, buddy. I was here first. <laughs> and they, yeah. they, they pose that as a logical argument. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, and I, I, I'm sure your perspective is a little bit different being in the city, but uh, I'm sure we can both speak to like just being on residentially lined streets. Like if some, obviously if someone, locally tried to substantially change the the physical landscape of the neighborhood, I'm sure I would be displeased. It's part of the uh, reason and the allure that I, it drew me to that neighborhood. So I, I can see it from both sides. You know, there's, there's places for denser housing and, and multiple units and whatnot, or, you know, uh, if, if a neighbor wanted to do something and it turns out to block people's views of, you know, the water. But you don't buy your view. Right. Don't no, you buy don't. your view. You don't own your view. You don't buy your you view. You could have bought If you wanted a view, view, you should have bought the house on the water. Not across <laughs> the street from the water, on the water. Right? So you don't get the right to bitch about the person across the street that used to have a ranch that now wants to build a big but don't, house but don't I? on the water. No! I'm you could have bought the ranch. As but guess what? You didn't spend enough money to buy the ranch because you're cheap. <laughs> and you know. but, as, but as an abutter, I truly do have the right. Except you don't. Except you don't. <laughs> because the zoning code protects certain interests of abutters like density and overcrowding and light and air. But one thing it does not protect is views. And it's a frequently litigated issue, but zoning codes do not protect views. It's not an interest that is legally protected by a zoning code. So mm. if your view is being impaired by a project that is otherwise compliant with zoning, i.e. they're building to 30 feet and 30 right. feet is the allowed height and that's going to block your view, the answer is too bad because if it's otherwise zoning compliant and your sole objection is it's blocking my view, you're out of luck. But why so I would say they it's blocking my sunlight is what I have to say. Yeah, at certain that, parts of the day. Right. Then they're going to do shadow studies and they're going to show that it doesn't, it doesn't and that you're making stuff up. And shadow But if it complies with the zoning, why are we in front of the ZBA? Are you talking about like well, maybe probably a site plan some, review some, some or some of, other? Some sort of re relief required yeah. more than likely. Yeah, something because you, as I say. A couple variances, not, not a litany. I Certainly gotcha. in the city of Boston, I Everything always say you can't change a doorknob without 
getting somebody. some form of relief of some sort, um, either historic commission or. No, there's a racket. You can't build a teeny tiny porch or deck without going to the Zoning Board of Appeal. Or paint your front door. Actually, color is not something that's regulated by historic commissions. What about substance, like um, form of front door? Absolutely. Like steel and glass? If it's an original front door that has historic significance, you can't change it. Who's history? History. Isn't history subjective? It, It is. I always say, hmm. Ever been to Jerusalem? It's like a 6,000-year-old city. How many 6,000-year-old buildings are there in Jerusalem? None. How many 4,000-year-old buildings? None. How many 2,000-year-old buildings? None. Maybe a 900-year-old building that's been substantially changed over history. And hopefully reinforced because we just learned that they don't survive well in earthquakes. They don't survive Uh, well. So we need to bring them up to code. So... Yeah, history is relevant, right? Because the entire South End or the Back Bay didn't exist prior to massive infill of what were formerly marshes as if they would ever be able to do that today. Um, they the conservation in. committee would have something to say. About oh, that. another yeah. bunch of assholes! Uh, cons- don't get me started on conservation <laughs> committees. We're going to infill the entire back bay from Arlington to Mass Ave and build six new city blocks. How about that? Right. This is not something that one just like plops into. Typically, like I'm, I'm gonna you know pick up today and I'm gonna be a zoning lawyer. So, right. so how did how did we get to this? How point? did we get here? Yeah. Well, so let's see. So I've been doing this for 35 years. Holy shit. scary. I know I was at my law school alumni board meeting last night, and they were tossing out. Another board? Another board. Nice. This (laughs) one was more friendly, and they served pizza. Um, There you go. 35th class reunion coming up this fall. I can't believe it. Um, But this is true. And started working at a firm. that largely did litigation and became a litigator and argued cases in superior court and was sort of the appellate guy in the office, so argued all of the appeals to the state Supreme Court and the state appeals court on a wide, wide, wide variety of topics, uh, all civil, no criminal work whatsoever. And my boss uh, at the firm had been a Boston city councilor at large for 12 years and was very politically connected still, and that was a large part of his business, including lobbying and advocating for clients' positions at City Hall, including, as it turns out, at the zoning board. And literally, he walked into my office one day, I don't remember what year, and said, would you have any interest in taking care of this zoning matter for me at the ZBA? And I said, sure. How uh, hard could it be? <laughs> what could go wrong? Could be? <laughs> but as it turns out, because I'm sort of a a law school geek, I had really enjoyed land use and zoning uh, when I took the class and had served on zoning boards of appeals in two different towns that I lived in. Mm. So I had, at the time, about seven years of experience on local zoning boards, including five years as the chairman of the zoning board in the town of Harvard, where I lived because I attended one meeting and they said, oh my God, he actually <laughs> knows something about this. Like, isn't it you, weird how I predicted that? Yeah. How would you like to be the chairman? Right. <laughs> that guy knows what's up. Let's, pro- let's make him in charge. Has Pulse not going to say no? Right. So I knew a few things about zoning, um, although Boston is very different and we'll, we'll explain that. Um, so I took that that first zoning case and sort of realized that my boss was actually foregoing a lot of business opportunity because what I saw was a huge need and a very small handful of people who actually knew right. anything about how it works. Mm-hmm. Right? You can read the zoning code cover to cover, Article 1 through Article 90, all 4,000 pages of it in Boston. S- still be confused. And still have only about half the knowledge that you need to get through the process because all the rest is just out there. It's all the unwritten policies and procedures and customs and practice and politics and sharp Players. elbows and all that kind of stuff that yeah. you just got to figure out over time. Um so I saw a terrific opportunity and started to build client base and meet developers and architects who are always the source of business because those, sure. are, those are the people that need yeah. zoning relief. Um, and lo and behold, this many, I think, 15-plus-ish years later since that first day wow. that I was asked, uh, it's pretty much all I do is zoning in the city of Boston. And the it's reason I stick to just the city of Boston is because there are... 351 cities and towns in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, 
350 are governed by one set of zoning laws, which is called Chapter 40A, the State Zoning Act, and then there's Boston. (laughs) Literally, a separate statute applies to zoning in the city of Boston. It's called the Enabling Act of 1956, which led to the first implementation of the Boston Zoning Code in 1965, um, and Boston Zoning Enabling Act and Code is very different than all 350 cities and towns in the Commonwealth. So every so often you'll see a non-Boston practitioner come before the Boston Zoning Board and Mm. they start, like, talking, and you're like, ooh, you're not doing it right. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez. Uh, Yeah, so Boston is unique in in many ways, not just it's a big city, unlike all the other cities and towns, but its laws are literally one of a kind. From what I understand, because I don't do any of this, but there are different organizations than exist in many cities and towns too, right? Like you, you've already talked about the historic commissions. You've talked about zoning boards. Give us a little rundown of like typical project, like where you're going to be, who you're going to talk to. So if your project is fewer than 15 units and less than 20,000 square feet, you're not going to go to the BPDA, the Boston Planning and Development Agency. Your project is too small for that process to be applicable. It's called Article 80. It's a whole separate part of the zoning code that governs development review of small projects, which is 15 or more dwelling units, up to 50,000 square feet, large projects, which is 50,000 square feet or more, and then things like institutional master plans, like Boston University, Northeastern University, hospitals that have huge campuses. They have a whole separate process for that. And do you do all this? I do. I do. Wow. I do. Okay. These are lots of words that you must have read. Large project review and acronym soup and, yes, BPDA. And asses to kiss? The the funny part about the BPDA rebranding to that acronym is that BRA, Boston Redevelopment Authority, was created by state statute way back in the day when they were given these huge powers to redevelop the city of Boston. And then they decided that authority was not the right tone to convey. So they came up with Boston Planning and Development Agency, BPDA. But then they realized that because it was statutory, they really couldn't change their name because it was a legal entity. So it's a DBA. So on (laughs) on legal documents, it says Boston Redevelopment Authority, BRA, DBA, doing business as BPDA. So it's BRA, DBA, BPDA. Got it? Who did that? Who renamed this place? Uh, that was done during the Walsh administration. It was. That's unlike Marty. I loved Marty. It was all well I intentioned. I miss Marty. They just. You When's Marty coming back? Yeah. He loved building. Uh, yes, he did love building. He loved it building. Was, it was his. Uni- Bring back Marty. His union background of you know what what do those cranes and scaffolding in the sky represent? Jobs. 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 And housing. And housing. Housing. Indeed. Is housing necessary, Mark? <laughs> Do we need housing around here? What would you say some of the like typical cases you do handle? And then what are some of the largest issues you run into as being uh, a zoning attorney? So my caseload has ranged from everything um, as small as a single family home. Uh, single family home renovations in the city frequently require zoning relief of some sort because they're perhaps converting unutilized basement space or attic space into what will be living area. So they're going to trigger zoning relief for that um, to the largest project I've worked on, which is Ink Block in the South End, um, a seven building project that started in 2012 and just finished construction of building number seven last year. So I was working on that project for literally 10 years. Seems uh, like not a very good billable good re- issue good there. No, <laughs> big retainer, maybe. Yeah. Huge, hugely successful project. Um, I like that Whole Foods. Whole Foods yeah. is one They of used to have valet parking. Do they still? Aren't there tunnels? They, they there's they tunnels do. there, right? No tunnels. No, no tunnels. No, no Someone tunnels. told me there was tunnels there. No tunnels. Well, there, there's sort of, you can go under the expressway, and there's a huge, beautiful park called the Underground at Inc., um, which was paid for by National Development, the developer of Ink Block. It's this beautiful park that has basketball courts and a dog park and landscaping, and they have you know beer garden type events. Uh, it's amazing what you can do with the underbelly of an expressway if you underbelly is a great word. Put some money into it, mm. um, but that's sort of under the expressway across the street from Ink Block. How's the lighting? 
It's very good. It's and good. So good you don't lighting, get um, good security cameras. Oh, they, good. They private patrol the area. It's amazing. It's a hugely successful urban park environment under a highway. Right. Useless space previously, probably dangerous previously. It was, Lighting it is was, a huge it, issue it was for like crime. A storage area for the State Department of Transportation for the big dig for you know twenty years. It's just like a dumping ground, and now it's a dog park and people are shooting yeah. hoops. So it's pretty cool. Um, so that was Ink Block, amazing project, seven buildings, four hundred plus units of housing, a fifty thousand square foot Whole Foods, which is. One of the top grossing Whole Foods in the country. Wow. Enormously successful oh, restaurants. Oh, build a city around it. Street <laughs> level restaurants and retail space, literally creating a village from what used to be the Nothing. place that they published the Boston Herald until it closed and then it sat vacant. And I remember taking a client who was interested in buying a condo in the city and Ink Block hadn't even started construction yet. I think they had just started to take down the Boston Herald building. And there were a couple from the North Shore who were, you know, empty nesters and wanted to downsize and move into the city into an exciting new neighborhood. And I thought, oh, Ink Block would be perfect for them. There'll be a grocery store, brand new condo buildings with amenities. What's not to like? And we drove over to that part of the south end and parked the car and they were like, <laughs> you expect no us way. to get out of the car? <laughs> Crazy. Crazy. As compared to, you know, what it looks what like it is today. Now, yeah. So that vision thing. <laughs> is, and I remember when I moved to Washington Street deep in the South End in 2002 um, and took my boss to see the building that I was going to move into, which is called Wilkes Passage. And there were, you know, all the thousand units of new housing on that stretch of Washington Street got built in a five year period of time. And we we're standing on Washington Street and the sidewalks were under construction and the street was all dug up for, you know, new pavement coming and new bus lanes. And he just looked up and down the street and said, why on earth <laughs> would you ever want to live down here? <laughs> How much did you pay for that unit? Uh, $380,000. Jesus this was like early, Christ. Early 2000s? Yeah. 2002. Yeah. And, and what I, do you think that unit trades, the last time it traded, what, what did it trade for? What was the square footage? 950 square feet in a, in a cool new loft building. 11, 1200 a square foot. And I think the last time it changed hands, it, it sold for just shy of a million dollars. Wow. 989 or something like that. Same same unit yeah. that I bought in 2002. But I sold that and moved across the street to Rollins Square a year later. Another new development that the Archdiocese of Boston had done, um, mixed income 184-unit complex. That was an amazing property. Lived there for eight years and then sold that and moved to Southie in 2011 when Southie was sort of a thing and started to, um, you know, I was reluctant to leave the South End, but uh, we did, and I don't regret it at all. I think uh, 2011, statistically, was the best year to buy real estate. Fun fact. I, yeah, it, it, it was the tail end of the recession, and everything had been beaten down pretty thoroughly in 2000. It's really before Celsius even popped. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you were definitely one of the first people there. Well, when my husband and I announced to people that we were leaving the South End and moving to Southie, it was just met with surprise and mm -hmm. <laughs> shock. What? Why? Why would you move to Southie? And at that point in my life, I had lived in Boston for 32 years. And had probably been to Southie or that part of Southie where we moved to twice. maybe <laughs> maybe twice. Right. Like, why would you go to Southie? Um, happy to say it's, you know, it's changed very much. Uh, it's a very welcoming neighborhood. It's really exciting to see young families and people walking their dogs and new construction and new development. But um, the young families shouldn't stay too long. They should sell and buy big houses in the suburbs. That's usually what happens. Yeah. That's part of the pattern. And they should hire Seth to I do I it. I think they're staying. I think oh. a lot of people are trying to stay. But isn't it more expensive to pay for the tuition at, you know, a $50,000 a year kindergarten than to move to Weston? I mean, it is. Maybe. Right? Over time? It's frequently a pattern I see in my transaction practices. You know, young couple... Buy a one or two bedroom condo in Southie or the South End. Five year run. Four or five years later, I get the call. We're selling our unit. I'm like, how how old's your child? <laughs> right, right. Just about to start kindergarten. Four and a half. Yeah. Uh, we looked at the schools. We didn't get into the one we wanted to um, because there's intense competition to get your kid in. A the few of the Boston public schools that are actually decent, the rest are not. And if you don't hit the lottery or however you get your kid into a Boston public school that's performing and is a good school, um, you move. 
you move to the suburbs, you sell your unit and you move to the suburbs um, where they have good schools and your taxes are higher perhaps, but you don't have to pay. Yeah, it's all a wash. Or, or perhaps not. Or perhaps not. There are some towns that have amazing bargains uh, considering the school systems mm-hmm. that they have. In Boston, I mean, they have the resident exemption, but the taxes aren't like free in Boston. They're not bad, though. They're yeah. not bad. Taxes in Boston compared to other cities of this size are not bad because of commercial, commercial financial district. Yeah. Well, we'll put, make a note of that because we'll talk about what's going to happen in the next two years with oh, Boston's please. tax oh. revenue because of. Well, this is a great segue. We might as well start talking about it now. So, yeah, yeah, I think I've given the high enough level of of zoning. So zoning in Boston, it it controls what use you can put your property to, i.e. residential, commercial, what kind of commercial, what kind of business, what kind of residential use, single family, two family, three family, multifamily. So use broadly is regulated and then dimensions are broadly regulated. So what what is zoning? If someone said, what is zoning in two words? I would say use and dimensions. Mm. What can you use it for and how big can it be? How tall, how dense, where, side yard, front yard, rear yard, setbacks. That's broadly what zoning regulates is the use of property and the dimensions of the property. So back to a person's home is their abode. abode. Uh, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> Subject, of course, to, to the abutters. To the abutters and articles 1 through <laughs> 90 of the Boston Zoning Code, which says what you can use your property for. Maybe you can have a home office, maybe not. So so, um, hyp- so hypothetically, if you had a, a small office uh, in East Boston that was zoned for an <laughs> antique store, would that be an issue? It depends. The answer is always it depends. There are, uh, zoning codes are so mind-numbingly complex, and frequently there is no answer, right? You search high and low. You look at all the footnotes. The answer is always What if the there footnotes. was a decision from the ZBA in 1994? <laughs> it was to change its use, though, from office oh. to antique. Hypothetically. 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 It, it, it might not matter because the, the change of use might have been necessitated by the antique shop but the use from which it came, office, might be otherwise currently allowed. Interesting. So that's okay. You can always go from, uh, you can always change a use to something that's allowed. It's when it's not allowed or conditional that you need to seek relief from the zoning board. Mm. Mm. But so, I, I love so hypothetically, it could revert. It could revert. Yeah, you could look it up in the table of uses. Yeah, I can't wait to do that. And, and, and the table of uses. <laughs> he, he's not kidding, actually. The table of uses will show uses that are allowed, denominated by the letter A, conditional, letter C, or the dreaded F, forbidden. But if you look in your table of uses, my Is F always F? F is always forbidden. Yep. You can't even get a variance for an F? You can get a variance for an oh, F. Oh, so it's not always F. Well, it's just it's it's harder v- via the SP. In, in theory. <laughs> but if SP is better. SP is a special permit, which exists in every other city or town except Boston. Oh, oh really? there's no SP? There's What's no SP, SP in Boston? SP is C, conditional. C. Oh. Uh. Con- conditional use is functional equivalent. We could have a whole S- new alphabet. SP. We could. We could talk about all the agencies that are required to review your your application in Boston. First, you start at ISD. Can't we just hire you to do that? Then you go to the ZBA, <laughs> a.k.a. BOA. Can we talk about FAR for a minute? <laughs> There's another acronym. Then you have to go to the BPDA, doing business as something else. And then you got to go to the PIC and the PWD to get your curb cut permit. And then you got to go to the SELDC if you live in the South End to get your this historic approval. This sounds so affordable. Right. So like I'm hearing you and all I hear is my bill is going up. My bill's going up. My bill's going up. The bureaucracy. Right. right. So we, we're in this like affordable housing kick, right, where we don't have enough affordable housing. Has anybody thought that we make it unaffordable to build housing? Like, is, the, is anybody talking I've, about that? Michelle, I've, if you're <laughs> listening, I know I saw you at Angela's at breakfast the other day. You Which are making the, it more unaffordable. Stop. Let go. Which, by the way, someone's for like 15 units over recently. You know that, right? Over Angeles? Yeah. They're no. going to still be there, though, right? No, that brick that brick that's above it. Yeah. My camera just died. <sighs> that brick that's above it just uh, um, is a new layer. It's like a whole new... Uh, Building? Yeah, they just tacked onto it. Good. Resi units. Yeah. Made it conform with the neighborhood. Anywho, we've talked about 
is housing unaffordable? That was where we were just going right yeah. now. Yeah. So let's, yeah, so let's talk about that. The and broader observation on that that I was sharing with Brendan earlier is, is not so much that we don't have enough affordable housing or that we have a housing affordability crisis, which is how the issue is typically portrayed. portrayed. The issue is we don't have enough housing Period. Of, of all full stop. types. Period. Full stop. Agreed. We don't, we don't have enough affordable housing. We don't have enough moderately affordable housing. We don't have enough middle market housing. We don't have enough sort of expensive housing. But know what we have, Mark? And we don't have enough luxury housing. We, we have 4,000 pages of the Boston Zoning Code. <laughs> you know what that does? That makes housing less affordable because someone has to pay Mark to read 4,000 wow. pages and then do all the applications to every acronym you just <laughs> talked about, go to all those committees, sit there, probably be the third or first, fourth person on the agenda that night. How about the 67th? Or the 67th. How much does that cost? And long, I can't imagine with your last? experience... That your hourly rate is like real low. So like I can't imagine the development that took 10 years, like how affordable it was for them to get the relief that they needed. Yeah, it's, and, it's you know, restrictive. Coming back to the bribe thing, I was kind of <laughs> kidding about the bribes. Like they only do bribes because it's complicated. If it was easy <laughs> and it didn't cost a lot of money, no one would be bribing anybody because there'd be no one to say no. It'd probably cost the government less too because we wouldn't need all these idiots in all these committees <laughs> doing all this stuff and working for all these agencies. That was Brendan likes to go on rants. Yes. So although it obviously doesn't immediately make housing unaffordable, it is so overly complex and long that I think it stops people from doing the process for a multitude of reasons and therefore creates less housing and therefore housing is, is less affordable. Yeah. So you asked, let's talk about FAR, right? Yeah. Cause you mentioned uh, single family in the city, mm -hmm. basement, attic, conversion of space. A lot of that's my understanding is FA, you know, I don't even know what FAR stands floor for. Floor area ratio, ratio. Right. So which is the relationship between the lot size and how much square footage can be on that lot. So super and why simple does that, example. Why does that matter? That's how we regulate. Because it was important in 1968. Right. That's how we regulate mm -hmm. density. When, when you hear people complain about density, what they're talking about is FAR. And these so are people that live in cities. People right? live We're in not cities. talking about Boxford, where you need a right. two-acre lot. We're talking about the South End or the Back Bay, which is dense. But, for example, if you have a lot that was 5,000 square feet and you were in a zoning district that had an FAR of 1.0, you could build 5,000 square feet of living area on your 5,000 square foot lot. Mm. So maybe that's three units on a 5,000 square foot parcel, which in a dense urban environment is just preposterous. So we point our fingers at the suburbs, wealthy suburbs like Weston and Wellesley, and say they have exclusionary zoning because they have large minimum lot size requirements of one acre or more and that's exclusionary and it keeps poor people from moving into those cities and towns and it's a terrible terrible thing and it's so exclusionary boston functionally has the same thing in the form of restrictive far's in dense urban neighborhoods some of the neighborhoods in the city of boston have far's of 0.3 or 0.4 or 0.5 so that is if you had a 5,000 square foot lot and the FAR was 0.5, you could build 2,500 square feet of living area on a 5,000 square foot parcel. That is, like that is quite, that is, well, yeah. it's, it's well, common. In the suburbs is lower. Right, in the suburbs well, it's even lower. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to have FARs of less than 1.0, which is ridiculous in the city, but to have 0 0.5, 0 0.4, 0 0.3, is the functional equivalent of two-acre minimum zoning in the suburbs, which right. we Boxford. wildly yeah. cr wildly criticize as exclusionary, yet... We're doing the same thing. We're doing the same thing in the city we of Boston. We couldn't even build the city of Boston today. No, you could no. not build, you build Beacon Hill. Towns. You couldn't build the Back Bay. You couldn't build the South End. Can't you couldn't build, build South End. Can't build, can't build, build Nahant. Win you definitely can't build Winthrop. Definitely not. If you did an FAR analysis of most buildings, existing buildings in the city of Boston, based on the FAR that is permissible under the zoning code in that neighborhood, you would find that probably the vast majority of buildings already exceed sure. the FAR. And now we're talking about trying to add to buildings to create more housing when it's, it's all about FAR, restrictive FAR, which prevents the construction of dense, more affordable housing. Okay, here's a great trivia question. What's the most 
affordable, densest city in the world? Oh, geez. London. Uh, I was going to say it's probably like Dubai. Tokyo. Tokyo. I was close. Tokyo. Why? Tokyo is the densest, most affordable city in the world because it is the densest city in the world, right? right? There's a lot of housing in Tokyo, a whole lot. They build more housing in Tokyo than there are people such that it ends up being affordable. So Tokyo is the densest, most affordable city in the world because they embrace density. Right. Through necessity. Through through necessity. But nonetheless. We shouldn't wait for it. We shouldn't shouldn't wait for us to get there. What I find really interesting right now, and then I want to talk about the financial district uh, and what's coming down the pipe there, like how many new developments are coming? You know, think Revere Beach as a great example, completely redeveloped, <laughs> and the, still going, and still going. And East Boston's similar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, right in my backyard here. Rentals, they're all rentals, but the vast majority of them are rentals, right? So. But that's a financing issue, not a uh, not a zoning issue. Right. That is presently a financing issue. Banks, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Banks, banks mean, won't lend money for condos. They're only lending money for apartments because well, of the, the I think, return on investment. I think even, well, some of these go back years. Do you think that's more recently or do you think that's no. years back? I, th- I think it's a general rule of thumb for banks because they know their money's tied up for sure. years. 10 years, 20 years versus See, I, a I, year and a half. I almost, well... Uh, the way I've been looking at it is that it's almost by design because they know housing is such at a, uh, you know, supply issue. Let's not build housing for sale. Let's build something for permanent perpetual reuse that has a significantly better long-term return, which by the way, perpetuates a housing ownership issue. That's been my point of view on it. Yeah. You're saying it's more driven by finance, bank lending. Yeah. And, and, and not just bank, but who lends money to developers to build property? Pension funds, uh, union pension sure. funds, large uh, governmental pension funds. So they're looking for a long-term rate of return. And what better than to build a 200-unit building where people are going to be paying rent for years and years Forever. and years and years and years. So that's a nice investment for a pension fund to have. Interesting. Okay, so let's talk about the financial district. And what you had just uh, previously mentioned. Yeah, so generally taxes in Boston are, you know, not that bad for a city of its size. And you get the residential exemption if you own and live in your house, which this year, for example, was worth about $3,600 off your tax right. bill. So that's that's pretty good give back if not you yes, are, are owning your property and living in the city and contributing to, you know, your neighborhood. Um but the reason they're able to do that in Boston is because of the huge commercial tax base, most visibly uh, represented by the financial district, right? The tall buildings filled with, well... Empty used space? Used to be filled with yeah. office workers who <laughs> travel into the city and spend money in the city every day. Um, and the value of those buildings for tax purposes is based upon the rental income right. of the commercial space. So this happened back in 2008, 9, and 10, where the value of commercial buildings is not like a residential property sure. where it, it's worth X, right? And it's worth it's X it's even income. in bad times. It's based upon the income stream of the building. So a lot of these buildings are experiencing vacancy rates of 30% or more, depending on the quality of the building, such that when they are reassessed for tax purposes next year and the following year, those assessments are going to plunge based upon the vacancy of the buildings and the lower income derived therefrom. That sounds like a crisis. So that what happens then? So Resi the tax hike. But tax you can only res- raise the taxes on the residential 2.5%, right, without an override? Right, across the whole city. Um, but there are other ways to manipulate that. Oh, do tell. Yeah, with yeah. Value- yeah we love manipulation. Tell us. Well, evaluations. They, right. They just but the whole levy can't raise more than 2.5%. But it can. <laughs> <laughs> through through new growth. I just remember my taxes once in Boston went up like 40% in one year. And I thought, how is this possible? It, it is. It is. It is for an individual owners to go up. But it, but yeah. the whole levy that the... the so uh, on, yeah. as my time on the finance committee, yep. the whole town's... Yep. Yep. Tax collection, except yep. for new growth, can't go up by more than two and a half percent without an override. Without an override, they yep. they can reallocate owner by owner, 
where mine could go down and yours could go up 27%. Right. But and they can reallocate as between commercial and residential. Correct. That's where, where the killer is going to come. Comes, yeah. Right. So Interesting. If, if Boston suddenly has 1 billion less in tax revenue because the financial district is 30% or more vacant, they're not just going to say, oh, the budget for the city of Boston was 4 billion last year, but we have, we're, <laughs> three. we're yeah. a billion short on, on tax revenue this year. So let's just cut the budget to 3 billion. That never happens. No. Oh, I bet that's going to make housing more affordable. <laughs> totally more affordable. <laughs> right. Um, so it's, what a com- disaster. It, it's, yeah. it's, percolating and i remember back in 2009 and 10 you know reading articles about it and and sort of oh this is gonna be a problem and what was the reaction from city government at the time do nothing no 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 better more restrictions more restrictions make it harder (laughs) make it harder um so yeah against that backdrop we are now hearing proposals to increase the affordability requirement on new development projects from 13 to 20%. Doesn't that reduce the tax levy anyway? It it does (laughs) reduce the tax levy because affordable units... So perpetuating the problem. Affordable units, of course, not only pay a lower tax rate, but let's say, for example, an affordable two-bedroom unit is going to be allowed to be sold for $300,000. Mm. Whereas if it was a market rate unit, it would right. be worth $1.1 million. But under the, ready for another acronym? IDP, Inclusionary Development Policy, in the city of Boston, there are predetermined price points. So let's say that two-bedroom unit is going to sell for $300,000 to someone fortunate enough to be selected to buy the affordable unit. All right. is the value for tax purposes of that unit. In Boston, the tax rate, rule of thumb, is about $10 per $1,000 of value. So on a $300,000 unit with a $10 per thousand tax rate, what's the annual tax bill? $3K. $3,000. Three thousand dollars, and what did I, I knew t- that? What did I tell you? The residential exemption value thirty six hundred, thirty four hundred and sixty. So, what is your tax bill if you own do you get a, do you get a an zero. IDP unit? Do you get a rebate? You don't get a rebate, but you don't pay any taxes. Nice zero. Wait, can we talk? I just thought of something. So you get you get a a reduced market rate yeah. to purchase your home at three hundred thousand dollars. Then you pay no taxes. And then if your unit is in a condo building, which it's going to be in the city of Boston, your condo fee is set at an artificially low percentage. That was what I was going to ask. Yet you're consuming the same common expenses as everybody else. Is it in all of them? I had a client in Rollins Square Mm -hmm. with an affordable unit, and I remember their condo fee was like horrifyingly expensive. Yeah, they might have missed the boat at Rollins Square. Okay, so so some of the older ones, you 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 can buy an affordable unit, but not be able to afford your condo the condo fee. fee. That's right, because you're in a large residential complex that has an on-site Amenities, property manager yeah. <laughs> with an underground parking garage with a uh, ventilation system that is very costly and hot water circulator pumps and dreaded elevators in <laughs> multiple buildings. And landscaping and and, and deferred on maintenance and on and on and on the, and on the, it goes right. So who's going to pay that condo fee if the else. the I, other unit owners? That's, that's right. Is, that's right. right. So your IDP neighbor is paying no taxes to the city of Boston, and they're paying a greatly reduced condo fee to pay for all the services that everybody else is. Not that that should engender any kind of negative feeling, but it, it's just a reality of. This is a really good deal, right? If you get an affordable unit, first of all, you have to get through the process. There's right, a, there's pain. a story actually in the Globe today of a couple of folks who tried to buy affordable units in the city of Boston. Mind-numbingly complex and arduous process. It can take over a year. We have we have clients we have, that yeah. we have clients that call us all the time because the broker on the other end is refusing to co-broke or not answering these inquiries. So they yeah. call us for assistance yeah. to try and find out. And they've been selected as like a lottery winner, whatever you want to call yeah. it. It's been crazy. I, I think for me, the affordable housing, all all the stuff you said, super factual, right? And I, and I'm sure there's people listening that are like how dare they say that these things shouldn't happen, right? Well, at the end of the day, what frustrates me is like home ownership is the key to wealth at the end of the day. 
So you perpetuate the lack of equity for that person by uncapping their hypothetical appreciation of that property, right? So we've all seen the slide or hopefully all seen the slides. Like the homeowner, the homeowner net worth is like two to $300,000. The renter's net worth is 11K. And at the end of the day, when you cap appreciation because of an affordable unit, they're, they're just simply a renter. Let's be clear. Although they do, they are entitled to a four or 5% annual increase in the price of their unit when they go to resell it, which in some cases, if they hold on to it for 10 years, can be a pretty decent sure. appreciation. It's not the same bump that you might get right. in the market, right? but it's not do bad. Do you get the market or bad. do you get that automa- automatically? Um, it's part of the deed restriction is that you, you have to apply for a resale certificate and the city has to certify the maximum resale price. You have to go to the BPDA for that. The fact that you even have to do that is silly. You have to pay all these people, making it unaffordable. If we just got rid of all the restrictions, it'd probably be a lot more affordable. Perhaps so. Perhaps so. Um, and those people would have a, a very legal appreciation. <laughs> yeah. And again, I think that the concept of creating housing that is more affordable for folks that can only afford to purchase at that price point is is a good thing in theory, but in practice, what super complex. is super complicated. And I've had a few clients over the years that have been fortunate enough to be selected to purchase affordable units in the city of Boston. And it, it truly, if you think applying for a mortgage as a, a normal human being is Jeez. a difficult thing, try buying an IDP unit in the city of Boston and, and getting a mortgage for that. It is arduous beyond in, not my, in fitting into my like numbing. such a, a convoluted box that allows you to qualify for the program and also qualify for a mortgage at the same time because you can't have too much money but you have to have some money so you can't be too poor but you can't be too rich and you have to make just enough money but not too much money, and it and depends on the size of your house. And just you have enough money in the payment. bank, but not too much money in the bank. And you, you have to see? have some amount in your retirement savings, yeah. but not too much in your retirement savings. Do you know how many Goldilocks buyers like four. that are there? Out are there are four. There are four. There are four in the entire city, and it's just it's just not the right way to <laughs> do see, affordable housing. Uh, related but unrelated, even on the news yesterday, there was something about um, there's a bill um, f- uh, around right now, more specifically about uh, – the savings that you can have in the bank if you're on social security. So like there's some restriction right now where you can't have more than $2,000 in savings. That's a Medicare thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's crazy. Like, so there's all the, you know, there's just all these, the reason I bring that up is that this perpetual. Yeah. Why are you bringing that up? There's the perpetual restriction on wealth for folks who I think we're supposed to be helping. Well, just, we're supposed to be ho- they're, they're poverty-based programs, right? So, so Medicare is a poverty-based program, and right, they don't okay. want you to have any money. <laughs> Listen, and I'm if not, you had money, they want you to I'm use not, it to to fund your own health care. I'm not trying to switch this yeah. to Medicare. To be clear, I don't know when that bill passed. I think that's uh, been I think in existence FDR. For a long time. I think FDR right. did that one. So, so yeah, and two thousand dollars was the number then. Maybe. I mean, I, I think that's adjusted, I think that's but it point. hasn't adjusted. It's the perpetual restriction of yeah. old rules, and of laws, course, whatever you want to call it. Of course, what is the natural consequence of that is, what a surprise. People come up with ways to cheat the system, get yeah. around the $2,000 yeah. limitation by creating fancy things like trusts and giveaways hey, 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 to hey, their hey, children. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> Five-year lookbacks. Five-year lookbacks. Giving away their yeah. money, but not really because they still have access and control over it. Oh, you can't um, have control. You well, can't have control. Yeah, they can't so have You have control. to have an independent third party. Right. Like if you're that. looking for an updated yeah. estate plan, please reach out. <laughs> we happen to do those. Yeah. Jeez. Um, uh, okay. You know what this pisses me off about this oh please this is gonna be another rant no but sellers right so say you have a two family on p street in south boston and you this has been in your family for years mm-hmm. and maybe you don't know maybe the, maybe it could be a three family maybe you could put another floor on it but those people aren't going to be able to pay to get a lawyer to go to the zba to get the approvals so that they could make more money when they sold that property the 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 system is so complicated that the average person can't do it by themselves and they can't reap 
the benefits. Well, so if you had a good realtor, right? Say you had a good realtor who has a relationship with a guy like you, who knows and can look at that and say, if we brought Mark in and Mark got you zoning relief mm-hmm. and we sold this for X instead of Y, you know, that X amount of dollars that you spent to get the zoning relief is going to pay for itself multiple times. But, you know, the, there's no ability for, for the average person to comprehend this. And unless you're really, really involved in this world as either a realtor, I, I know you said that a lot of times the architects and the builders bring you in or the developers, but like the realtor should also know this, right? So like if they're talking to somebody who's got a family generational home that they're selling, like maybe talk to a guy like you before you list that. Like there may be several better uses that would net your client significantly more money. Yeah, I, and if, if you happen to be like a neighbor of mine in <laughs> South Boston, like about five years ago, you know, who had a single family home and a vacant parcel of land next door that her dad had bought for 300 bucks because it was vacant and had been wow. acquired <laughs> through a tax foreclosure by the city of Boston. So she had the single family home and a vacant buildable lot right next door, right? So she's thinking, oh, well, it's time to sell the house. And so, hey, Mac, right? <laughs> <laughs> what can I do here? And I was like, well, you know, if you partnered with a developer right. and structured your purchase and sale agreement such that if you and the developer partner to take the project through the approval process because you've lived here for three generations and you know all the abutters and you're going to be able to talk to them about helping your project get approved by the Zoning Board of Appeal. And if you get approval for X number of units, the purchase price is going to be this. And if you get a couple more units, the purchase price is going to be even higher. So it incentivizes the seller homeowner who's been in the neighborhood for many years to work in tandem with the developer who will then do the project. And I've seen it work very successfully hmm. in, in many cases. So if our realtors or listeners, you know, had a, had a, had a, an idea like that or thought maybe they could do that, or are you a good contact for them to reach out to, to, to as have long, those discussions as long as it's in Boston? Yeah. As long as, as, long it's, as, in as Boston. it's in Boston. Yeah. If it's in Boston, absolutely. But some people don't have the time. Well, that's what I was writing down. Like patience and stomach for it, right? They're, they're selling the house for one of the many reasons that people sell homes. There's been a life transition. Somebody has they died. They saw a great place in Weymouth. Somebody has been married. Somebody has been divorced. Um, somebody has had a new baby. Somebody's child has moved on to college, right? There's the, a bazillion the reasons. The W's? It's the D's. He's the hit, D's. He's hit the all D's. of it. It's uh, death, diamonds, divorce, divorce degrees, diapers, degree. diapers, and I've added debt. Debt, oh. right? There's so many reasons. 60s now. So yeah. if someone is selling their two family with a vacant parcel that comes with their property, but they're doing it because their spouse just died and they really just need to move on. They're probably not going to have the stomach for a nine to 15 month process of hearings and meetings and going door to door to their abutters and saying, Hey, I'd really like your help. They just, they're not going to have the tolerance for that. And they're going to say to Mr. or Mrs. Developer here, just take it. How much money right. will you give me for it? And, and right. good luck to you. And maybe the developer will do something. Well, I think will do something, but the homeowner is not doesn't just doesn't have the fortitude and the time to do it. How much do you think? I completely agree with you guys. Um, how much do you think of part of the issue there is like the transparency of what is possible in zoning? As you mentioned, I think it's you know four hundred or four thousand pages, like <laughs> four thousand. You know, like I I I have um uh something going on right now that I I dove into the Swampskit zoning code for the better part of a couple hours. It's I think it's only a couple hundred. It's like two to three hundred pages, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, I still had to call an attorney who has zoning expertise, and I I like kind of get it, right? So like, how much of this from if you're if you're that homeowner, right? Um technology or not why is it so difficult to just simply look up what is possible and how do <laughs> i not know that and do you think that also compounds to this redevelopment problem that we're in because to your point sure that person probably just wants closure right uh, you know yep. selling the house that they grew, grew their family in or whatever right and they just want to move on and go somewhere else so but if if at least there was some simple cross check that was easier don't you think that maybe they would make a more informed decision 
Yes, but <laughs> zoning codes much like ain't, ain't ever gonna happen. We should write that software. We'd be we'd be wealthy. Much like the you know the Internal Revenue Code or or figuring out whether your grandmother qualifies for Medicare or Medicaid or and how much whatever. savings does she have <laughs> and how much savings does she have and does she have a and when, when were the when were the transfers made irrevocable trust yeah. or whatever kind of trust um, it's it is mind numbingly complex and probably the kinds of answers you got I suspect from the attorney in Swamp Scott when you posed hypothetical zoning questions to him or her was. It well, yeah, it depends, <laughs> and perhaps, and maybe, and I'd need to see a concrete set of plans that would cost you a lot of money to produce. You'll need to get a land surveyor. You'll need to get an architect. We'll need to determine the FAR and the right. boundary lines. So instead, we just sell it for cheaper. Instead, you just say, oh. And I, the homeowner I, I, gets screwed. I can't, I can't deal with well, this. Well, maybe not screwed, but. Uh, right. And not if you're representing them, but, <laughs> you know. Not, they, they don't do as well they as they could. They potentially, somebody, could leave, they potentially can leave money on the table, yeah. no doubt. Can you just uh, uh, lightly touch on, um, I presume you're familiar with uh, the multifamily, like zoning near T, the T stations. Can you just talk a little bit about that and what does that mean for different communities? Yes. Back to our favorite friend, the acronym. Most of the time, those are called TODs. <laughs> Transit, Overlay? Transit-oriented development, uh, otherwise known as large buildings that are built at or very close to public transportation stops, right? What a novel concept. If you've ever lived in the oh. suburbs and you want to be a commuter and be a do-gooder and not drive your car into the city and take the commuter rail, what's the first problem you encounter when you get to the commuter rail Parking. station? Parking. There's no place to park your car, <laughs> right? They want people to take the commuter rail into the city to reduce the number of cars that come into the city, but you can't park at a commuter rail parking lot because there's no parking. How about this? Instead of having huge parking lots at commuter rail stations, why don't we have huge 10-story condominium and apartment buildings so people can live in these buildings and perhaps just walk downstairs and jump on the train, the T or the commuter rail, right literally in or the, the ferry. Or the ferry in the lobby of their building so that they'll be able to utilize public transportation. It is I bet you Tokyo does that. I, I bet, bet you, Tokyo, I bet you Tokyo definitely does, does a that. lot of dense building on public transit routes. Yes. Or um, I think Wonderland's done a decent job of that. Yeah. Yeah, there certainly are a lot of, you know, large buildings near Wonderland. Maverick. Alewife on the I haven't been to Maverick on like on the end of the red line. Yeah. Alewife used to be just yeah. barren parking lots. Whole and Foods and Jasper White Summer Shack. Now it's just massive uh, apartment Qu buildings. And Quincy's done good. Quincy yeah. has done very good. And I'm always amazed when people remark of such buildings like, why would anyone want to live here? Oh, my God, it's right next to the train station. <laughs> uh, that's maybe why. Yeah. That, that, that's why they want to live. Just like, why would anyone want to live in these large apartment buildings that you always see like right off the exit ramp of major interstates? Like Inkblock. Like Inkblock, right? <laughs> it's remarkable. People comment at oh, my God, why would you want to live right next to the expressway? Um, because you can walk to the red line. You can jump in an Uber and be at the airport in five minutes flat. You can pull out of the parking garage and get on 93 South or 93 North or that. Route 1 in 30 seconds But you'll seconds be on 93 less. South for six hours trying to get to well, Quincy. Exactly. Every, every hour of the day, every day of the week. But that's because you couldn't park your car at the train. I'm never taking a train. <laughs> Let's just be clear. And so isn't there uh, some... Uh, There's a new law, right. a state law that was uh, signed by Governor Baker, which requires cities and towns to come up with plans to modify their zoning codes to specifically allow dense multifamily residential development at or near public transit stops in those cities and towns. And if they don't, they then... They lose funding of various sorts. And as I understand it, there's one case that has been brought against the town of Holden, which refuses to even submit its report saying how they intend to comply, which is the only stage that we're at right now is that every city or town had to submit a report saying this is how we intend 
to comply at some point. Can in you the imagine the Facebook posts in the Holden Town Facebook page? They still they they we should join it. They yeah, we they, should. They refuse to even submit the report saying how they intend to comply. So they have been sued by the Commonwealth, and it will be an interesting case to watch. The Nahant one talks a lot about how much money do we actually get. Mm. Like this, this analysis of like, is the money worth it? Right. Like we'd rather not have the housing. Are you guys close enough? Oh yeah, there's bus any anywhere there's a bus stop. Oh, really? Is part of this. So anywhere the where there's a bus, MBTA uh, buses go through Nahant, so we're we're on it. Bus, train, commuter yeah. rail, anything, and it's not just. I think it's also within a certain a pro- mile proximity. Yeah. So it's a pretty wide swatch wow. of the Commonwealth that's covered by this law, um, but you know. Lar- they have five years to well large buildings coming soon to a transit oriented station anytime soon mm, right? right these things take time as they say I thought it was a good first step it's a great it's first a great step. first step I wish the legislature if you're listening legislature why don't you just abolish zoning take all the rights away from the municipalities and have it be a state code because there's no reason that all these nimby idiots should be able to direct how people build. Can we call them nidiots? We can call them nidiots. Yes. New term. Heard it here first. <laughs> nidiots. Nidiots. Yeah. Well, I am heartened by the uh, proliferation of these new groups, which are the antidote to NIMBYs. Yimby. Yimbies. I follow a Yimby group on Facebook. Is that, is that yes in my backyard? That's yeah. a yes in my backyard. Yeah. Who, Bring it on. Who advocate for increased density and increased production of housing. Um, there is a Yimby in Boston who formerly worked at the BPDA, <laughs> and she regularly appears at zoning hearings and civic group organizations on development projects and affirmatively and very effectively, because she was in the business, advocates for the creation of more and denser housing in the city of Boston. And her voice is just so remarkably refreshing, right? And when new apartment buildings for renters are proposed, there's a lot of neighborhoods in Boston that, oh, renters, they're transients, right? 65% of the citizens of the good city of Boston are renters. But if you propose a rental building in any neighborhood in Boston, they're immediately dismissed as transients. There's going to be transients living in our neighborhood. (laughs) Transients. Like 65% of the city of Boston apparently are transients because that's how many people are renters. But this YIMBY advocate shows up at hearings and says, and brings the I'm, data. I'm a renter. In fact, I was a renter when I was an undergraduate student. I was a renter when I was a graduate student. I was a renter when I was a PhD student. I was a renter when I worked for the BPDA. And I'm a renter today. And because of the existence of rental buildings, I'm a citizen of the city of Boston. And it's just like so effective. Bring it, sister. Yeah. It's so effective. We should have her on the podcast. Yeah, we should. Who's our Yimby friend? We want to meet her. And there's a, there's a Yimby group in Jamaica Plain, which is fascinating wow, that's shocking. to watch. It is shocking. <laughs> but you think they'd be a bunch of NIMBY idiots. Uh, there, Limousine liberals. And the... Uh, the originator of Yimbyism apparently is from California and huh. in, a, in a small town. Ironic. And showed up at a, a community meeting and advocated in favor of a moderately sized. I'm going to start showing up at meetings and just. Development in, in her community. Testifying. And the, testifying. The, the town manager of that town remarked that he had been doing it for like 25 years and never had anyone ever come yeah, it's all the fruit loops that want to say no to a meeting and testified in favor of a development project Fear and he was like no oh my god who is this woman and she founded the yimby movement in california yeah. i think we should support a yimby meetup with a word <laughs> listener so just, both we'll of try, you we'll please come we'll mark you are wicked smart as evidenced by this entire conversation thank so you kindly the, the one thing that i would encourage anybody listening is if you are working with developers, if you are working with buyers in the city of Boston and you need any sort of zoning relief that Mark is clearly your guy, um, you know, you continually blow me away with your ability to comprehend dense, difficult information that, you know, 4,000 pages of, you know, 
page turning information, I'm sure. Very and, and, and we didn't easily even, read. We didn't even we didn't even talk about PDAs or IMPs. I don't even know yeah, what you, public displays displays of affection. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, we didn't talk about that. We yet. didn't talk about that. Mark, but, how can but, people get a hold of you? Planned development areas. Oh jeez. Oh jeez. Oh, <laughs> that should be everywhere. So I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, it's Mark with a C, M-A-R-C, Lacasse, L-A-C-A-S-S-E. And I went with Obvious for my firm <laughs> name, Lacasse Law, L-L-C. I am super easily findable on Google. You'll find my Facebook page, my law firm Facebook page, my Instagram page, Lacasse Law. Um, I don't just talk about real estate. I'm not a one-dimensional person. I, I, I take pictures of landscaping and puppy dogs and babies and nieces and fun stuff and draw attention to myself that way. But I'm easy to find. If you just Google my name, Mark Lacasse, Boston attorney, there'll be thousands of entries that pop up um, linking to publications, letters to the editor that I've written over the years, perhaps a few here and Sharing there. your opinions. Sharing my <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> yeah. Shocking. Cool. Brandon, so, you want to close this out? Yeah, so Mark, we, we like, as you know, the name of the podcast is called The Word. We like to end every interview with what is one word that you would use to memorialize how you're going to view your next 12 months? Optimism. Ooh, tell I us am, more. I am eternally optimistic. About um, voter turnout? About everything. Everything. We have to be, because if we're not optimistic... Um, there are certainly plenty of reasons to read the newspapers every day and feel like, whoa, the end is near, as has frequently been reported. If you look, right. at, if you look at a for newspaper years. from literally 50 years ago, or for example, I printed out like a newspaper article about the housing crisis. Uh, the Globe just published an opinion piece. A hundred years of choking housing growth catches up in Massachusetts, and they published headlines from... 1970, 1956, 1949, 1951, housing <laughs> crisis, housing shortage. Home builders warn of drastic housing shortage, housing crunch, now a crisis, housing crunch called economic threat. Those are the headlines of the past 60 years when it comes to the Commonwealth's future as it relates to housing. So, yeah, there's plenty of things to feel negative and bad about, but I like to, uh, I like to be optimistic. Awesome. I love it. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Str- strangely, we love talking about zoning, so yeah, maybe it's one we'll, of our we'll, favorites. We'll rekindle it. Thanks for having me, and I was invited to speak to a group of northeastern undergraduate and graduate students a couple years ago, pre-COVID, when we still did things such as met with lots of people in a stadium-style, uh, <laughs> an academic environment, and they invited me to come talk about Boston zoning, and I thought, really, <laughs> like undergraduate and, and graduate college students are interested in he- hearing about zoning and they said yeah it's the real estate club we're interested in going into the real estate business and all different facets of it and I went and there was like 75 people in the room who had wow. come to hear some lawyer nerd talk about Boston <laughs> zoning and they engaged loved they loved it and they loved it and they asked very thoughtful uh, provocative questions. They understood the issues and, and it gave me cause for optimism. It really did. I thought, this is amazing. These kids are so on on point. So, yeah. People, awesome. are, people are interested in it because it's an important topic. And uh, so, again, thank you for having me and uh, it was a delight. Awesome. awesome. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to The Word Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. If you could take a minute and leave us a quick review, not only do reviews give us valuable feedback, but every positive review tells the algorithm to push this episode out in front of more people. If you really want to help us out, send this podcast to someone who you think would benefit. Thank you so much, and we hope to see you next time when we talk about The Word.